0: if you brought your Bible, I want you to open it up to Amos chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way to the end. All right, and it says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, The notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Kelna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence— Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they now shall be the first of those who go into exile And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up... "'Bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, "'Is there still anyone with you?' He shall say, "'No,' and he shall say, "'Silence. "'We must not mention the name of the Lord. "'For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, "'and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen?' But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, you who rejoice in Lobadar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lohamath to the brook of the Arabah. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Andrew. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is James Walden, and I'm uh, one of the elders here at Riverside Community Church, and it's, it's my honor and the task uh, for me to uh, walk us through this passage this morning. Uh, the last two weeks, J. Will has been looking at chapter 5, the previous chapter, and the lament that Amos the prophet takes up over Israel and sings a, a dirge over her. And in the course of this lament, he gives three woes. Last week, Jay looked at that first woe. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. And in our passage this morning, there are two continued woes that he pronounces over Israel. Uh, woe to you who are at ease in Zion, in verse 1, and then verse 4. Woe to you who, who stretch yourselves out on your ivory couches with your bowls of wine and your jazz music or what have you. So, I want to first begin by addressing what is this woe? What is this language of woe? Because I think in our age of political theater and moral outrage, we're all morally outraged all the time. Outrage is per- perhaps the only emotion that our culture knows. Uh, it is easy to read into this woe our rather cynical views. When we see our political leaders express their grievances, uh, we we might be excused for thinking them more alligator tears and, and, and faux outrage for the sake of show rather than genuine moral consternation. Or, at worst, we would view it as just more rage in our culture. So I don't know how you, what, what you hear when you hear the prophets say, whoa, but perhaps you hear cynically a kind of moralizing wagging of the finger, or even worse, a kind of gleeful, you're going to get yours. But let me impress upon you that this is not the intonation of the prophetic, "woe." The woes of the prophets were part of the lament. In chapter 5, the lament that Amos begins, that J. Will walked us through, uses the word woe more than just the one instance where he refers to those who long for the day of the Lord. The same word is translated differently in verse 16 of chapter 5, where Amos calls for everyone to come to the streets. Whether you're the farmer or you're a professional mourner, come to the streets, lament, and say woe, woe. The word gets translated alas, alas. It's an expression of heartbreak, of lament, of sadness, of grief. And when the Lord Jesus Christ took upon his lips the woes of the prophets, his intonation was the same. It wasn't with anger and a wagging finger that he pronounced woes, but with grief and lament that he said, For instance, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, while we lament, for you will weep and mourn. So, my prayer this morning, as we enter into the prophet's woes, that we will enter into their lament and their grief over Israel's sins, but more poignantly, our own sins. So, would you pray with me, Father? We thank you for your word that calls us to rejoice, and Lord, it calls us to lament, to repent, Lord. lament the ruin of your people. And I pray, Lord, this morning as we hear your words, you would shine your light onto our own hearts, our own wounds, Lord, not to harm us, Lord, but ultimately to heal us, and that we would lament because it's the only sane thing to do in the light of our wounds. Lord, grant us the gift of repentance as we Read Your Word this morning and respond. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our merciful, gracious Lord. Amen. Well, we'll begin with the woe to self, the self-secure. In the very opening of our uh, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. He speaks here of Jerusalem but then immediately to the capital city of northern Israel and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The language here of, of ease speaks to those who are uh, sort of comfortable in their self-confidence. They feel a false security, a security rooted not in God but in themselves. It is rooted in pride. Pride. As it goes on to say, the notable men, the foremost men who are of the first of the nations. Their pride is in their political status. These notable men are men of the court of Jeroboam II. Men who were rulers and governors, uh, advisors. They are respected. The whole house of Israel comes to them. They are the, the, the powers that be in Israel. They are the foremost. So they have a position of political power and sway, as well as social and economic power and sway. There's also, I think, here a note of religious pride. The fact that they're described as the first of the nations harkens back to the book of Exodus when God says of Israel, You among all the nations are my treasured possession. And the promise that was given to Israel if they kept the covenant was that they would be the first, that is to say the head, which is the same word used here, of the nations, not the tail. And so here these men imagine themselves the cream of the crop, the head of the heads of the nations. And it reminds me I've always been perplexed by why reformed Christians who would stress the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of grace, the unconditional election of those who are saved, so typically, so stereotypically fall prey to pride. How can you be prideful in the light of God's grace, in the light of His unconditional election? the answer is, it's nothing new. It's, this isn't new to Calvinism or Augustinianism or to the writings of Paul. This, this, this pride that comes from our sense of being chosen is as old as Israel. When God declared that Israel's is his chosen nation in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has to qualify and say, but I didn't sh- he didn't choose you because you're a great nation. In fact, you're quite puny. He didn't choose you because you're so righteous. You're not. You're wicked. He chose you because He chose your fathers. He chose you because He chose you. It's a a kind of unconditional election. And yet it yielded pride and arrogance, as it does sadly so often for the church. A kind of carte blanche. We are the chosen of God. Surely God is for us. All that we, are, we do is blessed. This led to a national pride, but also military pride. Verse 2 refers to their national boundaries. Pass over to Kalna and see, and go from there to Hamath. These are cities that were in Syria in the north and in the west. And then I want you to go down to Gath in the east to the Philistine capital. Are you greater than these kingdoms? Is your territory greater? And the implied answer is no. You should be greater You are the people of God, but you're not. You're no different than these surrounding pagan nations. They boasted in their own might, in their pride. Look at verse 13. You who rejoice in Lodabar. Lodabar is a city in the Transjordan that they had recently recaptured under Jeroboam II, whose king, as Amos writes this, But there's a pun happening here. Amos puts a pun on the word for this city. He just changes a vowel and makes it mean nothing. You who boast in nothing. And then there's a small little town uh, that he also mentions in verse 13, Carnaim, And Carnaim just means two horns, which are symbols of strength. You who boast in your conquering of this village. You who would bully the smallest kid in the class. You boast in your great strength. Thus, look at verse 8, what, Paul, what the Lord declares. Look at the titles. The Lord God, Adonai Elohim, who has sworn by himself, declares Yahweh, the God of hosts. Elohe, Sabaoth. Like when God enters a room and he is announced, what you want to hear is Yahweh the merciful. What you don't want to hear is Yahweh the God of all armies is entering in. I abhor the pride of Jacob. What is the pride of Jacob? I hate his strongholds, his citadels, for he trusts in them. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. I have whistled for the Assyrians, and they are on the way. And you will fall like a fortress made of toothpicks. The Lord opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Jesus' half-brother James writes this, Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Lament. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. But you will say, as a Christian, as the chosen one of God, but surely God is for us, is He not? Isn't He with us as His people, as Christians, as American Christians? Isn't God for us? He is for us who are Christians. He is for churches in Christ. But when we exalt ourselves in pride, We position ourselves not under, but over Christ. And God must eternally oppose this. In Christ, we are loved more than we can even dare to believe. But in our pride, we are opposed by sovereignty. The dread Almighty opposes the proud American evangelical. He is against him, the smug Southern Baptist, the superior Southern Presbyterian, the spiritually conceited Pentecostal. He opposes them. God is anti-arrogant, pro-Trump Christians. He resists puffed-up social justice warriors. He pushes against the self-righteous anti-racist. Omnipotence positions itself against the self-satisfied liberal elite and the self-satisfied conservative elite. He is at loggerheads, the Almighty, with the woker-than-thou Democrat, the hypocritical Republican, and the self-absorbed libertarian. God opposes the proud, whatever labels we claim for ourselves— Whatever policies we give lip service, he gives grace only to the humble. To everyone who humbles himself or herself before the Lord, man, woman, and child, he gives grace. But our pride blinds us to our vulnerabilities and our real dangers, which at root, finally, is God's opposition to us. What could be more terrifying than to find ourselves opposed to the Almighty. And this is exactly the irony that Israel faces. Look at verse 7. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. You would be the first of the nations. You will be the first to go into exile. You who are elect of God. God has elected to exile you. And the devastation that results is is terrifying. Look at verses 9 and following. If there are ten men who remain in one house, they'll all die. And when one of their relatives goes to find their bones to bury them, and he calls out in the rubble, is anyone else here? A voice will cry out and say, no. And then, shush! We must not even mention the name of Yahweh. God's opposition is total. Verse 11, Behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck down to fragments and the little house into bits. Nothing escapes, nothing remains. God's opposition to our pride is total. Our pride, furthermore, dulls our moral senses. It atrophies our fear of God. If God is for us by default, if we believe God blesses us carte blanche, that progress is inevitable, that blessing is unconditioned, that He must bless us, we're His people after all, then it actually renders God's judgments in history irrelevant. More than that. It would replace God's judgments in history with our own actions. Look at this fascinating passage from Zephaniah, kind of a parallel passage. But Zephaniah chapter 1 says this At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. In other words, I will find every dark corner. And I will punish the men who are complacent. The word complacent there is a synonym for those who are at ease in Zion. Those, what does it mean to be complacent? Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good and the Lord will not do bad. In other words, God's judgments in history are irrelevant. All that matters is our opportunistic actions and our own shrewdness. That's what will get things done. We become, in effect, atheists. It reminds me of, what, again, what James, Jesus' half-brother, wrote when he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a place, and we're going to live there, and we're going to trade, and we're going to make a profit, and then we'll go do this. He's like, what? You don't know what tomorrow holds. Your life is just a vapor that's here today and gone tomorrow. You ought to rather say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this. We live in light of God's sovereign rule over history. But he says, as it is, you boast, and your boasting is arrogance. All such boasting is evil, James says. This godless perspective, which is the norm in our secular age, that history is just the story of power passing from those who have it over those who don't. It's a brutal tale of blind will to power and dumb luck. But such a view of history isn't only cynical, it's wrong. History always has morals to teach us. History is filled, it is replete with the tales of the righteous vindicated and the wicked exposed, even if not in their lifetime in the books of historians. And that ultimate tale will come to its fruition on the day of the Lord, when the righteous will all be vindicated and all evil will be expelled and will be exposed for what it is. But how much more dangerous is this atheistic view of the world when it's coupled with the religious certainty of a carte blanche blessing from God? Because after all, we are his beloved favorites. It is one of the sad facts of history, and a testament to the power of this delusion, this pride, that wherever the Western church has appeared on foreign shores, between the 15th century to the 20th century, whether Catholic or Protestant, wherever the Western church appeared on the foreign shores, there indigenous people were subjugated. It is that pride that Israel was infected with, that we are infected with. And so, so Zephaniah goes on to say this, their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they will not inhabit them. They plant vineyards, they won't drink from them. This is straight from Moses. And then going on, the great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, of ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds, darkness. Does this sound familiar? This is last week. This is Amos, right? Saying you guys are longing for the day of the Lord, that it's going to be blessing, but it won't be. In your pride, it won't be. On that day, Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How can we know? What does true security look like? Jesus answers that question at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. After he warns us that there will be many on that day who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do ministry in your name? He says this, everyone who, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who builds on the rock. And the storms come and the waters rise and the winds blow and the house stands. He is secure. But those who hear my words and do not do them, he is a fool who builds on the sand and the storms come and the waters rise and the wind blows and great is the collapse of that house for it has stood opposed to God and God has opposed it." We can know true security. We can rest assured in Jesus Christ. But we run to Him and we cling to His feet and we listen to His words. If we would have Christ as our Savior, we must have Christ as our Lord to whom we are promptly obedient and respond in following His instructions and word. Secondly, woe to the self-indulgent. We saw already with the cows of Bashan in chapter 4 that oftentimes the comfort of the wealthy and the well-to-do is at the expense of the poor and the oppressed. And we saw that last time. But sometimes it's simply a matter of this, that the pursuit of comfort dulls our consciences. Look at what Isaiah writes in chapter 5 of Isaiah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. See, that's what's happening here in verses 4 and following of, of Amos. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, who eat the lambs of the flock, calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs, who, who in their luxury can invent new music and new instruments. But they are indifferent and dulled to the ways of the Lord. They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. You know, in Ephesians, Paul says you can be one of two things. You can be filled with the Spirit or you can be filled with wine, but you can't be both. To be filled with the Spirit is to be truly sober-minded to what is real, to what the Lord is doing and who he is. But when we pursue comfort, we grow dull to justice. When we pursue self-indulgence, we grow numb to righteousness. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 12 of chapter 6. Do horses run on rocks? Does Does one plow there with oxen? Of course not. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitter wormwood. This is a, repeat, a repetition of what he said in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Those who twist justice into murder and righteousness for cries of trauma in the streets, to quote Isaiah, will inevitably face God's judgment. And indeed, as verse 7 says, the, revel- the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The party will end and quickly. Isaiah goes on to write this, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Oh, sorry. Woe to those who call evil evil good and good evil and who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is that reversal that has come in the dulling of their consciences, of justifying evil deeds or ignoring their evil deeds or calling evil, uh, their, the lack of good they did as a, as a, as a necessary move. All way, manners of justifying our evil and calling it good. But he goes on to say, Isaiah, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight, to those who are heroes at drinking wine, and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. It reminds me of King Lemuel is a king in Proverbs whose mother gives him wise instruction. I think it's one of the few instances of Scripture where a woman seems to be the author of Scripture. But she's instructing her son, the king, and says, Son, don't drink wine as king. It's not fitting for a king to drink. Because you have to adjudicate for the oppressed. You have to protect the rights of the poor. And if you are pursuing strong drink, you won't do it. There's a contradiction between the pursuit of justice and the pursuit of self-indulgence. Finally, this dullness that our self-indulgence creates in us is evidenced most strikingly in our lack of lament. Look at verse 6. You who drink wine in bowls and anoint yourselves with the finest of olive oil, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. The ruin of Joseph here is a common phrase, the ruin of God's people throughout the prophets and speaks not only of their material ruin, their national ruin that's come upon them as an act of divine judgment, but perhaps even more significantly, the moral ruin that precedes it and the spiritual wounds that Israel carried. Listen to what Jeremiah says in the book he wrote properly entitled, Lamentations. It's not this verse yet, but we'll get there. Uh, O virgin daughter of Zion, for your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? And notice how Jeremiah, the prophet, the righteous prophet of God, responds to the ruin of Zion. The wound of the daughter of my people is great. For that wound, my heart is wounded. For the wound of Zion, my heart is wounded. This is very different than the false prophets. Look at the, And this is on the screen from Jeremiah, from the book of Jeremiah. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. There's that same word, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. They, want, they don't take the wound seriously. They don't grieve it. They don't lament over it. They just have another drink. And they say peace. When there is no peace, it's a false healing. What is the wound? What is the wound that we need to be addressing? Is it the wound of America, our apparently fragile democracy, where our political discourse has reached its most base level, where it seems that we as the church fear men more than God we've compromised? Uh, with the American dream, and so it's it's, it's the corruption of America that we need to grieve, that our, our nation is so torn by racial tensions. These are all grievous things, and we should pray about them. Scripture says we should pray for our nation and for our leaders. And it is right and good for us to lament the brokenness, the wounds of our nation. But more importantly here, more to the point of what Amos is addressing, it is the wounds of my people that is to say, the church, that we should grieve. Where the church has feared men more than God, where the church has compromised with the American dream, and we've become less disciples and more consumers, where we have allied ourselves with political parties, where we've become just a voting block, where we have chased political power instead of spiritual power, We need to look intently at those wounds and not ignore them, but see them and lament. C.S. Lewis wrote this on his book on the Psalms. Listen to this. I'm inclined to think that we had better look unflinchingly at the work we have done. Like puppies, we must have our noses rubbed in it. A man now penitent who once seduced and abandoned a young woman then lost sight of her had better not avert his eyes from the crude realities of the life she may now be living. For the same reason we ought to read the Psalms that curse the oppressor. Read them with fear. Who knows what curses of the same sort have been uttered against ourselves? When prayers have, what prayers have red men, black, brown, yellow sent up against us? He's speaking here of white men, against us to their gods, or sometimes to God Himself. All over the earth, the white man's offense reeks to heaven. Massacres, broken treaties, theft, kidnappings, enslavement, deportation, floggings, beatings, rape, insult, mockery, odious hypocrisy make up that smell. How do you respond to Lewis's statement? Do you dismiss it? That was written in 1958. I don't think he was influenced by cultural Marxism or wokeness. Do we avoid it like the puppy who doesn't want our noses rubbed in it? Or perhaps we embrace it eagerly. Yes. Yes. The church has been so evil. But do you eagerly also welcome such scrutiny from the word of God in your own life? To look unflinchingly at your own sin, our own wounds. Flannery O'Connor famously wrote, grace wounds before it heals. We must face the wounding, burning light. It won't kill us, but it will hurt (laughs) to see our sins in in the noonday light of Christ's face. But it will heal us. Here's the verdict. Light came into the world, but the world loved darkness. But those who come to the light show, reveal that their work is done in God. And so here's here's what I'm calling us to do. To let the scrutiny of God's Word, of His light, burn us. To see our own sin, corporately and individually. And to lament. To experience the prophet's woes over our own sins. To weep. To to use Paul's phrase to express godly sorrow over our own sin and to invite God's searching lamp. Remember the words of James, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so I want to invite us now to do that, to humble ourselves before the Lord and to invite his light into our hearts. Would you pray with me? And if you're comfortable, kneel with me and there at your seats. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are, though you are the God of the armies of the earth and of heaven, you are a God of great compassion and mercy who loves us even in our pride. You love us. And in your opposition, seek not our destruction, but our salvation. So Lord, you have opposed us in various ways and rightly so because we have been arrogant. Would we confess our arrogance? Lord, we don't want to be opposed to you. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Lord, we pray that you're, you would search us and know us. And if there be any unclean way about us, anything about us unpleasing to you, Lord, that you would show us our sin. That we would see it. Not that we might simply be abased, but Lord, so that we might be exalted. We might be lifted up in your grace. Lord, we need your grace, not your opposition. Lord, we we lower ourselves before you and pray that you would forgive us our sins, show us our sins, and by your grace grant us the gift of repentance. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, who on the cross took upon his own shoulders all the woes of the law and the prophets against us, that we might receive once and for all your blessing over him. And we embrace it now, We embrace your blessing that comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In your name we pray, amen. You know, when I was first starting out in ministry, my mentor said that p- Christian ministry is like living life in concentrated form because you're there with people in their saddest moments at the funeral or at the bedside of a hospital, but you're also there for their greatest joys, their weddings, and for the celebration of their firstborn child, for their baptism. These are sacred moments that are unique to my calling that I get to be present with. But I really think that, tr- that is true of every Christian. That for every Christian, this life is life in concentrate form, because we are called to be a people of lament, who mourn and repent, who feel with a godly sorrow our own wounds and the wounds of our people. And we cry out to God in grief. We are also people of unspeakable hope, and those things go together. If grace doesn't feel amazing to us this morning, maybe it's because we haven't felt the depths of lament only then will we know the heights of this joy we just sang. We will feast in the house of Zion and we will weep no more. We who weep now will weep never again. And so receive this blessed hope and promise that is given to us from our triune God of grace. Now may the God of peace himself Sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, He will surely do it. And all the saints said, Amen. Before you go in peace, have a seat, and an usher will be in to dismiss us. As you're sitting, just a quick reminder. That there is the Discovery Luncheon after our second service today. If you're interested in that, please join us. And secondly, don't forget the family meeting. I hope to see you there at 4 o'clock.